Welcome, Congregation of First Baptist Church, China Grove. We're here tonight to have Bible study. I'm going to continue in the book of Ephesians like I have on Sunday night. It may be a Wednesday night when you're getting this or whenever, uh, but that's okay. Bible study is Bible study. So we're going to look at that, the book of Ephesians tonight. And we're going to look beginning in verse 7 at our salvation. And it says this, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I can't think of a statement in the New Testament that puts together all the different pieces of framework of our salvation as this verse. We are redeemed. That means a price was paid to buy us back from the slave market of sin. The price of that payment, the redemptive price, was Christ, the Son of God, deity, dying on the cross for our sins. And so that is the redemptive part, and it's through His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, a Lamb, the Lamb of God. And through that we have the forgiveness of sins. And then according to the riches of His grace. And we are saved by grace, through faith. It is the grace is the conduit through which the love of God flows and everything that comes regarding our salvation is through that conduit of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And so as we look at this verse we see that we're redeemed, we're forgiven by the precious blood of Jesus and it's through his grace. And God has given us certain things and he's made known to us in the following verses. And then we come down to verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who trusted in Christ. And he has predestinated certain things to happen to his people it mentions in the verse before. And we should walk in relationship with him. We should walk in the light, walk together as one with Christ. We don't always, but God has given us forgiveness of sins through confession to right that ship and to be back in fellowship. But God wanted to make sure not only we've been saved by the blood of Christ, and let me just point out that his name, Jesus, means Jehovah Yasha. It means the God who saves and keeps. And so when we talk about our salvation, this salvation is not something that comes and goes. It's not something we can lose. It's something that once we have, we can never lose. Because it is permanent. Why? Because we are redeemed. And it says here we've obtained an inheritance. And then it says in verse 13, and here is the key, in whom you also trusted after you had the, heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom after also you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And there it is. We heard the gospel, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus for our sins. We responded to the gospel. We believed. It says it there. And after that, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit promise. That means that the Holy Spirit came into us. That's the word born again. We were born again of the Spirit. It talks about that in John 3, 
When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, he says, Do you not realize that you're born physically, but in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again, spiritually. Born from above, it literally means. And Christ, we have been born again through faith in the gospel. And because of that, God has given us the down payment, the earnest of our salvation, the Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It says in verse 14, it was the earnest of our inheritance uh, till the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of, of his glory. I'll explain that in just a moment. But we were sealed. What does that mean to be sealed? Well, back then, to be sealed means that God has put his stamp of ownership on us. We were sealed by God. Why? Because he redeemed us. He bought us. And as a result, he has put a stamp of ownership. That stamp of ownership is the Holy Spirit in us. And once the Holy Spirit is there, it can't be removed. Once we've been born again, we can't be unborn. Just like being born physically. Once you're born physically, you can't be unborn. Well, once you're born spiritually, you can't be unborn. You cannot be lost. And so he says, I'm going to give you this down payment of your salvation. Then he says in verse 14, which is the earnest. And that means down payment. That's what that means. Uh, if you've ever bought a piece of property, uh, they want the up front, as soon as you commit to buy it, earnest money. Not a down payment, earnest money. They want $1,000 or whatever, $1,500. You pay as earnest money. Now, you won't get that money back if you don't buy but that's, that's what you're putting forward and say, I'm serious about this offer I'm making, and that is earnest money. And this is the thing that God says. I'm giving you an earnest, a down payment of your salvation. And he goes on and says, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his Lord. When's that going to take place? That takes place when either Christ returns or we die. Then he will take possession of of what he's purchased. What do you mean? What does that mean? Well, God doesn't want our sinful bodies. And our sinfulness, sinful bodies are not going to be in heaven. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and all other places in the Bible, it explained to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it explains to us that our bodies, which are sinful, have to go through a change, a process of changing into a glorified body, a body different from this. A body in which we will have that are similar to these, but without sin. So God is going to give us a new body. That's why when we have the committal of graves, we say we're committing to the earth that which came from the earth. The new body will not come from earth, but from heaven. Made like unto Jesus, the Bible says. And we shall be known even as we are known. We shall look the same, but the bodies will be glorified. And there will be no imperfections, no sin. And this is a wonderful idea. But someday God's going to take possession of that which he's purchased. And again, again, the idea is like a piece of property. When you put the earnest money down, you don't move in. You don't move in until final closing. And then, and we just went through this in South Carolina. Uh, you... There's a law now that says until it's filed in the courthouse, you don't even get the key. So you've got to wait a day later after you bought it to actually get it. 
uh, or fortunately ours won't be like that. As soon as Jesus takes possession, he'll take possession. But, you know, that's the waiting period. And right now we're in that waiting period. We're waiting for the closing to take place. We're waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for us to go to heaven. We're waiting in that in-between period. And that's all it is, just a short in-between period. And when you look at eternity compared to this short time, we're in a very short time, limited time. God says it's just a blink of the eye. It's just to Him, just a very minute moment of time. Uh, as somebody said one time, a great theologian, he said, "Eternity, or time is just an island on the sea of God's eternity. A little tiny island, and that's all it is, a great sea. And so here we are, Jesus will someday take possession. We are saved. God has given us the down payment, the proof of our salvation. And the Greek word here means a pledge paid with money to purchase and given as security for the purchase. So he has given us the security. We're not in heaven yet, but we do and we will experience the full purchase of heaven and all its benefits. But right now, we have still have great benefits with God. And verse 11 tells us that we have obtained inheritance and according to his will. And 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that we have uh, great and precious promises that God has given us. And we have an inheritance in heaven undefiled that fadeth not away. So we have a lot of things in heaven stored up for us that we haven't experienced yet that someday God is going to give us. And it's stored. Uh, compare that to what the world has given us. Do a comparison with 1 Peter 1.4 and Matthew 6.21 and those verses 18 to 21 where it says that upon earth all our treasures can be, somebody can break in and take them, the stock market can go down, uh, you know anything you have as treasure on earth uh, can fade away, can disappear, but in heaven that which God has stored up for us to give us cannot be taken away. We have we have the glory of heaven given to us and the inheritance is coming in a new body, a new body that doesn't experience pain, imperfection, sin, all that is wiped away. And this is what the scriptures are telling us here. Uh, it suited God, this was his purpose all along. We are the glory of God and his grace. Now, the Holy Spirit has certainly been promised. I'm going to turn back to the book of John, chapter 14, and I'm going to read just a few verses to you about this, about the promise. It says, the promised Holy Spirit. And this is the promise that God gave to us. It says in John 14, 16 through 18, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So how long is this new birth of the Holy Spirit going to be? Forever? Well, was that, would that indicate salvation is a lasting thing or a temporary thing? A lasting, eternal thing. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he will dwell with you and shall be in you. Now this is before the coming and dwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. So he's foretelling this. 
And then I love this. And this has been one of my favorite verses, verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So in our hour of need, we sense that Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit. He is certainly with us. And uh, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. This is how we learn the Word of God. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now that was specifically to the Bible writers. Then over in John 15, in verse 26, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And then finally, in chapter 16 of John, uh, verse 7, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. So all these verses indicate that the promise here is talking about the Holy Spirit of promise in Ephesians 1 definitely was the Holy Spirit of promise. He gave the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then in Ephesians we have the confirmation of what Jesus said has taken place. And until that possession of what he has bought. Uh, Hebrews talks about this. Uh, Paul talks about it. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8, he says, We see Jesus made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, uh, that he would taste death for every man. But he says, We don't yet see Jesus, although all things have been put under his feet. Jesus said, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. So when he died at the cross, he bought the earth back, he bought man back, he redeemed. But we don't see that yet. See, it says in Hebrews, but we see Jesus, who, who crowned with glory and honor for the suffering of death, and he by the grace of God should take death for everybody, every man. That's what we see. We see Christ crucified. All things legally have been put under Jesus Christ. He is the King of Kings. Lord of Lords, and he has bought the world back. It was lost by Adam to Satan. And that's why Satan's called the God of this world. But Jesus has bought it back. It's his now. Satan lost possession at the cross, but he hasn't taken possession. We're back to that illustration again of buying a house, but not moving in yet. Jesus hasn't moved in. And brother, when he returns and moves in, Gonna make some changes. You talk about government; it'll be government of Jesus, by Jesus, for the people. Okay, it'll be good for us. But Jesus is going to rule the world. Won't that be a great, great thing? Uh, and then, as we look in verse twenty-one here, uh, talking about Jesus here in Ephesians chapter one, look at this. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also is in the world to come. This is telling us about his authority. Above, far above all principality and power, might, dominion. Uh, Jesus isn't just slightly above the world leaders, he's way above the world leaders. 
and has put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church and head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth in all. So, Jesus is the head of the church, but someday he'll be king of the world. Right now he saves the sinner, but someday he will judge the world. And, and we need to keep in mind that when Jesus came the first time, he came as the suffering Savior, but when he returns, he will return as the reigning Lord and King. Verse uh, 15, uh, we have a prayer of thanksgiving. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus, and loved unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Oh, that God could say, it through this, Paul was saying this, but that God could say this to all of us. That when he heard of our faith, that God would be proud of our love and our faith. Listen, Christians, one thing in this trying time right now that we need is we need unity. We need to love each other as never before. I mentioned in my sermon about the young man David, my friend who passed away from the virus. Uh, and just, I wish I had spoken to him a little more. I wish I had reached out to David before his sickness and reacquainted ourselves in our friendship. I had not, and it's been a while since I've spoke to him. And I, sadly, I think at this time we need to love each other and, and realize that, you know, we may not always be here. Uh, somebody you see beside you this Sunday may not be there next Sunday, and I, I think that's always true. But times like this we begin to realize that's true, when God suddenly takes somebody that we know very closely. But cease not that we would love each other, be unified, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of the Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That your the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of his glory, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What we have here. It, it just spoke about the Holy Spirit being in us. And we have here the operation of the Holy Spirit in relation to us and the church. Uh, verse 18, obviously, is the illumination part where it said, The Holy Spirit would teach us all things. It says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. I can remember as an unsaved person trying to. Uh, study religion and I opened the Bible and I said well I'm going to start in the New Testament here reading in Matthew and I'm going to understand what the Bible is talking about well I read the first seven chapters of Matthew and I could really understand almost nothing about it and I laid the Bible down literally I tossed the Bible and I remember saying to myself that is the most useless book I've ever seen now that's the eyes of an unsaved man. When I was when I came to Christ and accepted Christ, I opened the Bible and all of a sudden <laughs> things began to leap off the pages at me. And things became known to me and I could understand 
Why? Because the Holy Spirit now is within me to guide me in the truth. That's called illumination. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit working in them to look at the Word of God and have illumination. Now, where we get a little, things get a little crazy in today's nomenclature and doctrine, especially among TV preachers. Uh, they will claim that something was given them the Lord. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, wait a minute here. Uh, this is the Word of the Lord. What they're getting is not the Word of the Lord. And if you hear somebody say that, they're, it's incorrect. They're not getting the Word. They, they may get a, be getting an idea from God based on the Scripture or based on something, based on a prayer, but it's not the Word of God. It's not revelation, and it talks about that here, uh, the revelation of God. And that's the part, verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Revelation is something that God gives us. It's the divine operation uh, whereby God gives the word of God unto men. I've got an example here in 2 Corinthians. Let me turn there. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 1 and 7. It is not expedient for me uh, doubtless to glory, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And that's Paul speaking. Paul was an apostle, and he was giving forth the word of God. So he had, he could claim revelation. He could say, "Thus saith the Lord," and it was true. And as a matter of fact, we know it's true because Peter later on in his epistles said that all of Paul's writings are scripture. So Peter confirmed that what Paul said was the Word of God. Now the Word of God, the canon was completed in the first century. And we've had no addition since. So if somebody claims to be getting revelation from God, I would say that's not of God. Uh, and then finally in verse 7 here, uh, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given me a thorn in the flesh. So Paul talks about the revelations he has received. He has received the direct word of God from God. And several times in relation to him, we're reminded, because there are several quotations that are directly from Paul that says he received this directly from Jesus. For example... Uh, we do the Lord's Supper, and a lot of times we use 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul says, I received of the Lord how that the night he was betrayed. Well, Paul wasn't there the night he was betrayed. But he says, I received this by revelation from Jesus Christ. And he describes exactly what happened. The Lord's Supper. I don't know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were completed, so how could he have known that otherwise? And he does describe the events of the Last Supper. So that's an amazing revelation. Later in the book of Acts, it says, uh, he says that the Lord has told us it's better to give than to receive. Well, that's not recorded anywhere except there by Paul. He said Jesus gave that to him, and it is recorded in the book of Acts. So we see that Paul was given revelation, but people are not given revelation today. 1 Corinthians 13.10 says that with that, it's, which is perfect, has come, 
that which in part will be done away with. And it was talking about the sign gifts and coming, being done away with, because the revelation was completed. And this is confirmed, I think, by the scripture in Revelation 2, or Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. And listen to this. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of word. Now the word spoken by angels is directly referring back to the Old Testament commandments that Paul said, uh, excuse me here, Moses said that the words were actually penned by angels. Okay? And he heard the word of the Lord speak, but they were penned by angels onto the stones. And so the word uh, spoken by angels was, and they did that live according to the law. Then it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first to be, began to be spoken by the Lord Jesus himself, but was confirmed by who? Confirmed unto us who heard him. Okay? That would be the disciples, including Paul. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And here we go, verse 4. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. And what I'm saying there is there after the giving of the word of God, after it was completed, after the apostles had lived and died and we'd received the Bible, there's no need for sign gifts. Those are strictly given to confirm the word of God. And so the need for sign gifts went away. And as a matter of fact, for a couple of thousand years, we haven't seen any sign gifts. Until, quote, we had them in the uh, 19th century, in the latter part of the 19th century, when that movement began. And we have today. Of course, the problem I always have with people who claim those kind of things, to have healing and so on, and by the way, I believe God, you can pray and God will heal somebody. That's not the gift of healing, though. I believe you can pray and God will do something miraculous. That's not a gift. That's just God answering prayer. And that's a miracle. But that's not a sign gift. A sign gift is where every person I lay hands on pray for is healed. And my question to all the guys who claim to have that gift, why don't they go to the hospital and just heal everybody? You never see these guys at a hospital. You know, they're always on TV. So, enough about that. Okay, I'm off, getting off the subject here. And then we have inspiration. What is inspiration? Well, inspiration is the thing that led people to inspire the men, the actual operation of men recording the Word. They were inspired of God. Now, we talk about inspiration, a painter might have it as he was inspired, or he had inspiration to do a painting or a literary work. Well, that's not the same kind of thing. When we talk about inspiration, we're talking about God used these men to record Scripture. Second Peter 1.21 says, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved is the idea of a ship on the ocean. And I, didn't, I still don't understand this principle. 
But a ship, it looks like to me, is blown with the sail. They say no, it actually creates a vortex and the ship is actually pulled along. I don't understand all that. I just know that that's true. Uh, it looks like to me the wind's blowing it, but they say no, the wind's actually pulling it. I, again, don't understand that. But they said these holy men of God were born along, pulled along by the Holy Spirit to record the Word of God. And it was recorded different ways. Obviously, when we look at the epistles of Paul, Paul used his experiences and his knowledge. He was a very knowledgeable man. Uh, Acts 17, he, he talks about the words of, of the, uh, the, the poets in the Greek society. He knew Greek poetry. He mentions, what, he quotes one of their authors of one of their poems. He was a very knowledgeable man. God used that in the scripture. He used their own particular gifts to record the scripture. However, sometimes in the Bible, God just secretaried it or dictated it. An example is the Ten Commandments. There was nothing of Moses' knowledge in there that was strictly what God said. God said, thou shalt not kill. You know, uh, there's nothing of Moses' background or nomenclature in there. It's just, there it is. It's dictated or secretaried. So this is the or inspiration part. And the revelation is the Word of God. And the inspiration is the act of them recording the Word. And then we are given that word illumination. Where we look to the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, and then we are led to study. We gain something from the Word of God. God puts light on it. That's what the word illuminate, to light up something that we see in the Word of God, a teaching of the Word of God. Now, in verse 22 and 23, it says, And has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of the church. And look ahead to chapter 4 here, verse 15, and it says, uh, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him to all things, which is the head, even Christ. So he is the head of the church. Uh, that's why we ought to, a lot of times, we have decisions, things to make, and I, I'll say this a lot, well, okay, I have this idea, this opinion, you have this opinion, this idea, but what does God want? That's a good question to always ask. Let us pray and find out what God wants, not our ideas. And try to follow Him as closely as we can. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, 8, 8 says the same thing. Colossians 2, 10 and 19, the same thing, basically. And in chapter 5, verse 23 here, it says this, For as the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So Christ is Savior, Lord, in him all the fullness dwells. That's what Colossians says. In him all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, if you take God and put him in a body, that's Jesus. And that's exactly what he wants. It says, all the fullness of the Godhead, everything that can be God was put into him. He was no less God in the flesh than God the Father. 
are by the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that. Uh, obviously, though, by his flesh, he was restricted. Jesus had to eat to live. He had to drink to live. Uh, he had physical limitations. God limited himself that way. That's called the kenosis, and that goes back to Philippians 2, and that's another issue in another Bible study. We won't get there tonight. But this is the idea of fullness. It means to complete, to put it together, making something full, as we might do in filling a bag at Halloween of candy. Of course, he is the fullness and completeness of God. Uh, again, Colossians 2.9, in Christ dwelt, are filled up, completed, the completeness of God in his body. He was completely God, yet completely man, except without a sin nature. He was born at a virgin birth, of course, and the sin nature genetically was not transferred to him. However, he is the fullness or completer of the church. First uh, Corinthians twelve eighteen. He is filling the body, and one day it will be complete. When that day comes, Jesus will return. He, uh, just like he said on the cross, it's finished. He'll say the church is full. That will be the end. And then comes the end. But it points out to us in this what's called Christocentric doctrine is that Christ is the center of the Bible. I mean from Genesis to Revelation Christ is the center. From the very get-go Elohim in the beginning of God, that's three. From the very beginning of the first verse of the Bible to the very end where it says the bride and the spirit say come that's the Lord Jesus. And so, from the beginning to the end, Christ is the center of the Bible. And we also know that he's the center of the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. That is the gospel. He died for our sins and rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. He's the center of the gospel. He is also, should be, in every believer's life, the center of our life. And as Paul writes here to the Ephesians, a church, again, that did not have any problems, he is going to do, as I always said, preventative maintenance. He's reminding them that Christ is the center of believers' lives. He should be the center of our life. And if he's not, we should confess that and make him the center. Make him. Christ is Lord. But sometimes Christ isn't always Lord over us. Sometimes we take matters into our own hands. And I'll end by saying just simply, Christ is all in all. So let me just encourage you this week as we enter into the, have entered into the Bible study to get something, get into the Word. Let God use the Holy Spirit to eliminate things for you. That's a very unused gift by many believers. But God would show you so many things if you just let it and trust it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for this time of Bible study. We look to you and ask your blessings in Jesus' name.